I wasn't sure which title would be most appropriate for the message today. We will work our way through Romans 14 today, as the Lord wills. My most recent message was from, was from Romans 13, the previous chapter, and was entitled, Why We Are Meeting Online Today. I could have titled this message, Why We Are Still Meeting Online Today. But the title about still meeting online today seemed a bit redundant all over again. You know, just another example of deja vu. Just another example of deja vu. Sometimes it's hard to preach in an empty auditorium. Normally when I preach and I make a little joke like that about the redundant thingy, that deja vu all over again, all over again, the audience rings out in mighty peals of laughter. Okay. Maybe the laughter is not all that mighty. Back to titles. Like I said, I wasn't sure what to entitle this message. Two weeks ago, the title was Why We Are Meeting Online Today. And may I briefly address um, that very same question again. Why are we still meeting online today? I have heard from several brothers and sisters, and they ask a question related to why we are meeting online today only. And the question is, what changed? That's a fair question. And I attempted to answer it uh, a couple weeks ago. Evidently, I may not have done as good a job communicating as I would have liked to. And, and, or maybe, maybe you missed that message. Or, um, and that's a fair question. What has changed? For most of the time through the pandemic... Uh, we have met, and we have met in person, and we have enjoyed that and loved that. But I wanted to uh, tell you why the pastors and the deacons uh, decided to go online for a, a period of, temporarily go online for a period of time. And, and I, I believe that there are four reasons why we took this little time out and uh, decided to meet only online. Reason number one. Uh, the COVID situation here in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, definitely worsened. When we first made the decision to meet online only temporarily, Tennessee was actually the hottest spot in the world for virus transmission. It's one thing for us to gather to worship when the infection rate in our county is one out of a thousand, which is what it was for much of the summer and some of the fall. It was one in a thousand. So in other words, if you, if you saw a thousand people in Rutherford County, you could be assured that statistically one person in that thousand had it. But the rates have changed, and the infection uh, of the population is much higher now. The, the COVID-19 situation is worsened. Now uh, we are approaching one out of 12 either has it or uh, has had it. And so when the infection rates uh, changed that dramatically, we definitely knew that it was time to reevaluate our habits and our actions. So that's reason number one. The COVID situation here definitely has worsened. Reason number two, uh, the governor requested. Since our COVID situation here in Tennessee has worsened, the governor of our state asked us to make significant changes to how we gather and how we do worship. And, and I think part of the key there is that he asked us and he asked us so nicely. He understands the importance of worship. Governor Lee knows the Lord. He's a strong Christian. 
and uh, he specifically exempted churches from any requirements, but he did ask us, and the way he asked us was in such a humble, loving way that we felt honored or felt um, compelled to honor his request. So that's the second reason. The first reason was the COVID situation definitely has gotten worse. The second reason is the governor requested it. The third reason is we heard from our frontline fighters uh, to consider that that not only had the situation worsened, but it did not appear to be at the peak. It was actually getting worse, and they were concerned about uh, what would happen as we approached the peak of infection. When we first made this decision, the infection rate had not yet peaked, and our emergency personnel and medical professionals let us know that the hospitals were almost full And even more importantly, from a personnel perspective, the medical people uh, who were caring for all the sick uh, were exhausted and uh, running out of energy and steam and and good health to help fight this virus. That's the third reason. The fourth reason was that many of our own uh, here at Blackman Baptist Church were actually fighting the virus. I'm happy to report again that to this date and to our knowledge, no one has contracted the virus here at the church. And we would like to keep that, uh, that good positive uh, momentum going, if at all possible. However, approximately 20% of the people that we feel responsible for that uh, we believe that God has placed under our watch care, those that we are shepherding, we believe that approximately 20% of us either have it now or have had it. We're hoping and praying that the Lord will spare us further suffering from the virus, if it be His will. But because such a high percentage of us actually had the virus at the time of our first decision to go online only, we prayed and asked the Lord to honor our decision. So when someone asks you, what changed? Why did you guys decide to temporarily go online? Um, I hope you will be able to remember these four reasons. And, uh, and I would also emphasize the word temporary. As the Lord wills, next Sunday, which is January the 24th, as the Lord wills, we will uh, meet again here on the premises. Now, I've already gone and checked all the hand sanitizers. They work. Uh, we uh, are going to think about how we're going to distance the, um, the seating, we are encouraging people to wear masks, if at all possible. But I believe that all of these are just minor difficulties. And I, I believe that they're temporary and they will soon be over. In the meantime, Romans 14 provides a perfect roadmap on how we should live our lives together as the body of Christ. And this Romans 14 message uh, I believe Paul wrote Romans 14 under the in, by the influence of the Holy Spirit some 2,000 years ago. And I believe that what he wrote was pertinent then, and I believe that it's pertinent now in the midst of this COVID crisis. And I believe that as the Lord wills and he tarries his return, that it will be pertinent a year from now, five years from now, ten years from now, because the word of God will not return to him void. It's powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. So we're trying to figure out, what do I name this sermon? Last week, Brother Ken uh, preached to us on earthly trouble, heavenly perspective. Nice title. I like that. 
And I could have entitled this sermon so many different things. Romans 14 is such an important chapter in the lives of Christians and and tells us how we are to live our lives together. So here are 12 potential titles that I considered. Don't argue about disputed matters. That'd be a pretty good sermon title. How about this one? Could you be the weaker brother? Here's another title. The Gospel for Vegans. Here's another title. Stumbling Blocks and Pitfalls. Or how about this one? Holiday or Holy Day. Here's another title. No Man is an Island. That's a little shout out to the great Christian English poet John Donne. And uh, then if you wanted to include the talented American writer Ernest Hemingway, you could say, you could entitle this sermon, Ask Not for Whom the Bell Tolls. He actually wrote a pretty famous book called For Whom the Bell Tolls, which comes from John Donne, which comes from Romans 13. You see the provenance of that line of thought. How about this title? Don't Let Your Good Be Slandered. Or here's another title. Are you love walking? Love? Brother Kevin, why so many different titles for this sermon on Romans 14? And I'm so glad you asked. I'm trying to whet your appetite to come back to Romans 14 and again and again beyond listening to this sermon. Because there is a lot of meat here. I'm talking sizzling, sirloin sermons and filet mignon messages. And some of these steaks may have been dedicated to idols. Does that ruin your appetite just a bit? Here's another title. Church members. Is your building up to code? Or are your building efforts up to code? How about this one? Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. And then the last one I considered. If it ain't faith, it's sin. I like that one. Short and pithy. Well, I'm sorry. I got a few more. We could have taken some sermon titles ripped right from the headlines. How about this one? Um, you know, it needs to have something with COVID or pandemic or something in it. Um, so I found a few good ones in my research. How about this one? Three cues for quarantine. Don't waste a pandemic. Don't panic in the pandemic. Or, and my personal favorite, this masquerade. Get it? Masquerade. Okay. Finally, I decided on a title for today's message, and the title of today's message is, drumroll please, Pursue What Promotes Peace. Pursue What Promotes Peace. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time together. Father, we thank you for Romans 14. What a roadmap. What a blessed chapter that tells us how we are to interact with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for including that so that we could have this and study this and and understand how we are to work together, how we are to live together as part of the body of Christ. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So we'll be working through Romans chapter 14 today. Romans 14 verse 1 is the first uh, focal passage. Welcome anyone who is weak in faith, but don't argue about disputed matters. I've got six principles for you today on how you should live with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Principle number one, welcome the weak, but avoid arguments. Welcome the weak, but avoid arguments. You know, the scriptures are clear. There really are weaker brothers and sisters in the faith. 
The Apostle Paul tells us that we are to be hospitable to those who are weak in the faith, but that acceptance is conditional. It's an acceptance with an understanding that we are not going to get into a bunch of arguments about different things. Who is the weaker brother? When you have a dispute with a fellow Christian, who is the weaker brother? Is it you or is it them? I would caution you to be careful here. This weaker brother situation can be a classic blind spot for us. More often than not, if you feel that your brother or sister is the weaker brother, maybe you're the weaker brother. Notice that Paul gives advice to the stronger brother here, and he gives no advice to those who are the weaker. Why is that? Why does Paul not give advice to the weaker brothers? Don't they need it more than those who are strong? You would think so. I was talking to Brother Ken about this phenomena here, and his thought is Paul didn't give advice to the weaker brother because no Christian actually thinks he's the weaker brother or the weaker sister. And I'm going to quote him here. He sent me an email about this. He says this, quote, Everyone thinks they are right, but not everyone can be right. So when you think you're right, or the stronger brother or sister, Treat your brothers and sisters gently and patiently, but not condescendingly. Always keep in mind that God actually knows the right answer. And imagine what he thinks of your treatment of others when, in fact, you're wrong. Close quote. Good thoughts. There are many of us in the body, and we are all at different developmental levels. We need to welcome those who are weaker or younger than us, in the discipleship process. And since there really are quarrels, arguments, divisions, etc. in the church from time to time, how are we to understand Paul's admonition here? Well, Paul's very simple. He says, don't, dis- don't argue about disputed matters. Now, note that Paul is not telling us that it's wrong to think about or to discuss certain doctrines in depth, especially with those Christians that we may not be in complete agreement with. It is a good thing to ponder the wonderful mysteries of God's word. Paul is saying that there are some mysteries that should not be disputed, and we should leave those matters alone. alone. Please leave those matters alone. So principle number one on how we are to live together as brothers and sisters in Christ <coughs> is to welcome the weak, <coughs> excuse me, avoid arguments. Let's look at our next focal passage now. Excuse me. Oh, sorry. Got a tickle in there. <clears throat> Romans chapter 14, verses 2 through 4. Hear the word of the Lord. One person believes he may eat anything, while one who is weak eats only vegetables. One who eats must not look down on one who does not eat. And one who does not eat must not judge one who does, because God has accepted him. Who are you to judge another's household servant? Before his own Lord, he stands or falls, and he will stand because the Lord is able to make him stand. Principle number two, remember who you are, remember who they are. The Bible is so practical. I just love it. Here in Romans 14, Paul gives us an example of a weak Christian arguing with a strong Christian over a disputed matter. What was this disputed matter? Well, Paul was born into a Jewish culture. He was a Jew of the Jews. But God called him to leave his comfort zone and take the good news of the gospel to the Gentiles. And the cultural and religious practices of Gentiles were very different than those of the Jews. 
the Gentiles of Paul's day and acquaintance were, well, they were pagans. There were idols everywhere. And the worship of these false idols permeated every aspect of daily life for the Gentiles. It was a common Gentile practice to offer a sacrifice to whatever, whatever God you had needed to appease at that time. So the Gentile would bring a lamb or a goat or a cow to his local priest. The priest would accept the offering, kill that uh, animal, and then sell the meat in the local meat market. So the burning question of Paul's day was, is it okay to eat a steak if it was originally offered to an idol? What do you do if your neighbor invites you over for a little summer cookout and you can smell the sizzling sirloin on the grill and you know that there's a very good chance that your pagan neighbor offered that steak to his favorite god, a false god. Now, in our culture today, this is not an issue. But this was a hot issue in Paul's day. And you can even read more about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. As we welcome the week, we must remember to not get into arguments over disputed matters. And Paul asks us a question in regards to this, and it's a very good question. The question is this. Who are you to judge another household servant? Before we're saved, we're just beggars looking for the bread of life. Now that we've been fed and we're telling others where they too can find the bread of life, let us not forget that we are formerly beggars, but now we've been upgraded to household servants. Sometimes in our interactions with our fellow Christians, we forget that we're servants and we act like we're their masters. This is shameful. Last summer, my oldest grandson, Timothy, worked with, worked with us in the print shop. And I'm so proud of him. And it was such a joy working with him this summer. Uh, he did a great job working in production and in the front office. Sometimes uh, I would hit a lull in my work and I would walk through the front office and I would see him and I'd say, hey, let's go get a cup of coffee next door. So we would take a break, walk next door, and I would try to teach him business principles um, during these times, how we could serve our clients better. We would meet the barista there at the coffee shop, and, and he or she would make us a nice cappuccino or a latte or a cup of hot tea. And we sit down, and we would uh, discuss matters, and then, then we'd head back to work and get after it. Now, imagine if one of those coffee baristas followed us back over to the print shop and then began telling Timothy how better to fold an order of brochures. Or maybe they'd look over his shoulder to see how he was entering an order into the computer, and the barista told him, hey, you are doing that all wrong. It would be much better if you did it this way. Would that not be ridiculous? Of course it would. That would be absurd. But when you second-guess your brother or sister in Christ, you too have become a boneheaded barista. If Jesus can wash his disciples' feet, surely we can serve each other and serve each other well. Remember who you are. You're a servant. Remember who your brothers and sisters are. They too are servants, and they're not your servant. I was talking with Brother Ken about these concepts, and he reminded me of a scene in Dalton Abbey 
Now, Downton Abbey, if, if you've never seen it, and I can't fully recommend it, um, Ron and I have actually been to High Clare Castle where a lot of that, that was filmed. And if you love history and if you love costume pieces and uh, historical fiction, Downton Abbey has, uh, certainly has some uh, enjoyable uh, storylines. And, and the whole concept of Downton Abbey is there's the upstairs where the family lives, and then there's the downstairs. It's kind of an upstairs-downstairs dynamic. And the downstairs is where all the servants operate, uh, behind the scenes, cooking, cleaning, organizing. And so you've got this upstairs-downstairs dynamic. And, and everybody downstairs is a servant. Everybody. Everybody upstairs is pretty much family. There is one servant who is basically in charge of all the servants, and his name is Carson. He's the head butler. In one episode, and Brother Ken shared this with me, I thought it was a great idea, and I'm going to quote him. In one episode, Carson, the head butler, had to take a pretty hard line with some of the other servants about their taking time off, or it was something like that. Mrs. Hughes, who is kind of like the second in command, Mrs. Hughes and he were talking about it, and then Carson says something like this, Heavy is the head that wears the crown. Carson was getting a little full of himself and his authority. Now, Carson is a good and kind man. He's not a bad man. He's not power crazy. But in that moment, he forgot that he was a servant, and he actually thought of himself as master. And he quotes a famous English saying that is normally applied to the king. And that's how we are with our brothers and sisters sometimes too, aren't we? We forget that we're servants. We forget that they're servants as well. We sometimes think that we can lord it over them. And Jesus specifically said, don't be like the Gentiles who once they have a little bit of authority, lord it over each other. It's interesting because Carson, the head butler, did have a position of authority. But he was a servant. And he forgot sometimes that he was just a servant as well. Let's look at our next focal passage now. Romans chapter 14, verses 5 through 8. Verse 5, one person judges one day to be more important than another day. Someone else judges every day to be the same. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. Whoever observes the day, observes it for the honor of the Lord. Whoever eats, eats for the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God, and whatever, whatever, whoever does not eat, it is for the Lord that he does not eat, and he gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for himself, and no one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. And that's our third principle. We belong to the Lord. Remember who you belong to. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 says, For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Brothers and sisters, you're not your own. Your happiness is not your primary goal in life. Your brothers and sisters are not yours either. Your brothers and sisters are going through life we're going through life together. And we must remember this concept of ownership. 
I've been reading a book called Finding the Right Hills to Die On. This is page 34. The writer says, It was at the cost of Jesus' death that we were reconciled to God. And in that same movement, reconciled with those reconciled to God. If we have peace with God, we have peace with each other. Our unity is so important that Jesus gave his blood for it. We are not our own. Remember who we belong to. Now look at verses 9 through 12 in Romans 14. Christ died and returned to life for this, that he might be Lord over both the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For, it is writ- for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Principle four, don't judge, don't despise, be accountable. In the most famous sermon of all time, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells us that we will be judged with the same measure of judgment that we pass out. When you stand before God, you won't have to give an account of what your brother or your sister did, but you will give an account of what you did or didn't do. And if you judged your brother harshly, that's going to be revealed at the judgment. If you despised your sister, that too will be revealed. If you lived your life as one who did not believe that he was going to be held accountable with God, that will be revealed in the judgment. These words from Jesus, from his Sermon on the Mount, especially in Matthew 7, show us that we should slow down when it comes to thinking about how we judge our brothers and sisters. This should make us really do time out. Should we be doing this at all? And the answer is no. Romans chapter 14, verses 13 through 18 says this, Therefore, let us no longer judge one another. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Still, to someone who considers a thing to be unclean, to that one it is unclean. For if your brother or sister is hurt by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy by what you eat someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be slandered. Slandered. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and receives human approval. Principle number five, walk in love. Walk in love, no stumbling blocks, no pitfalls. What does it mean to walk in love? Walking in love means we're not setting up traps for our brothers or sisters to fall into. Rhonda and I have been rearranging the furniture in our bedroom. When I got up this morning at 6 a.m., it's pitch black outside, I promptly walked right into a chair that had been moved into a new position. That chair was a stumbling block to me. I prayed last night, Lord, give me pertinent illustrations for this message. And the Lord gave me one at 6 a.m. this morning. When we think only of ourselves, when we should be thinking of our brothers and sisters in Christ, it's like we're rearranging their furniture in the dark. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul tells us how we should walk in love. And this is what he says. 
This is how we should grow in every way into him who is the head of the church, Christ Jesus. And he tells us, speak the truth in love. We Christians sometimes have a hard time with this three-part command. It's fairly easy for us to get two out of the three, but all three speak the truth in love. That's a real challenge. We may speak the truth, but we do it harshly, and this is where I live. Sometimes we speak the truth harshly without love, and so we damage the relationship. Or we may speak with love, but we omit the truth for fear of damaging the relationship. Or we may love our brother and sister, and we may know the truth, but we do not speak, once again, for fear of damaging the relationship. But Paul tells us to do all three of those, speak the truth in love. And that's what it means to walk in love. In our last focal passage, Romans chapter 14, verses 19 through 23. So then, let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. Do not tear down God's work because of food. Everything is clean, but it is wrong to make someone fall by what he eats. It's a good thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. Whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever doubts stands condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and everything that is not from faith is sin. Principle number six, pursue what promotes peace. The peace process here that's mentioned here has a few components. You are to build up your brothers and sisters, not tear them down. You are to keep your thoughts to yourself. It is very clear here. Paul specifically says, uh, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. You are also to be fully convinced yourself. Think it through. Pray it through. And be convinced. And don't live in doubt. Going back to finding the right hills to die on, I want to read this. The unity of the church is essential to the mission of the church. What he's saying here is it's very difficult for us to carry out our mission of telling the good news of the gospel to the world if we're not unified. I'll say it again. The unity of the church is essential to the mission of the church. And the mission of the church is the Great Commission. It's to take the good news of the gospel to everyone and make disciples. In John chapter 17, verse 21, Jesus says this, He's praying to the Father, and he says, May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be one in us, so the world may believe you sent me. That's amazing. The writer of Finding the Right Hills to Die On says this, It is striking that Jesus correlates the kind of unity that Christians should experience with the unity that he has with the Father. Close quote. We've just taken a whirlwind tour of Romans 14. So real, so practical. It is the word of God. And as always, it is so relevant, so pertinent to us today. And so here's the point of what Paul is telling us today. Please listen carefully. I've heard of churches arguing over the color of the carpet, music styles, 
Should we use hymnals or not? Should we use instruments or not? And we kind of chuckle and say, well, we would never do that. Well, let's make sure that we're not arguing over masks or vaccines or social distancing. My question today is, are you promoting peace? Welcome to the week. Avoid arguments. Remember who you are. You are a servant. Who are you to judge another man's servant? Number three, remember who bought you and at what cost he bought you. Remember who you belong to. Number four, don't judge. Number five, walk in love. Love. And number six, pursue what promotes peace. Father, um, I would try to feebly echo Jesus' prayer in John 17, saying, may we all be one in you as you are in the Father. Lord, bring us unity, bring us peace, bring us a true love of the servanthood obligations that we have to you and that our brothers and sisters have as well. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.